Shopping Maniacs. You're listening to another episode of the Chop Talk Show podcast all about front-end web design and development. I'm Dave Rupert. With me is Chris Coyer. Hey, Chris. How are you? Yeah. It's so funny how often you have to you say front-end development, and lately we're, out, we're really gray in the lines lately. We're you know? messing it up uh, quite a bit, but that's fine. Hey, well, we should just all say full stack really. now. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. We have a niche. We have a niche. We'll, we'll, I'll slip in something about CSS later to make sure it's up there. We have a special guest on the show today, though. Very exciting. Uh, 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 barely needs an introduction at all. Kind of like uh, uh, Madonna or something. Largely goes by your first name, right? The the, the man behind Feroz.org. It's Feroz! How you doing, sir? Hey, folks. It's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. We've been trying to line this up for a while. I'm glad it worked out. You do so much interesting stuff. Everything you do, it seems like you you put your whole brain into it and go big, it seems like. I mean, just two seconds before the call, we were on Riverside, and you're like, I thought about building this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is great. And then Dave's like, what's the most obscure question I can think of, you know? And he throws a zinger at him. He's just like, oh, I have the perfect answer for that. So, yes, uh, uh, <laughs> we're 30 seconds into the show, and, and Galaxy Brain is, is happening to us. Just amazing stuff here. But, but there's one big thing that we'll talk about, which is generally the topic of web security, because you have a, dare I call it a startup in this space, um, called Socket, the URL socket.dev. So why don't you, why don't we just start there and tell us just like the the 30 second version of yourself and then ending with what the heck Socket is. Sure. Yeah. So I'm an open source maintainer. I've worked on a bunch of JavaScript packages over the years. Uh, maybe folks have heard of standard JS, which is a code style and code quality tool and uh, WebTorrent, which is the first uh, library that made web or made BitTorrent work in the web browser. And, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Socket product and kind of what, what I'm trying to work on with Socket is um, really comes down to kind of how do you know if you can trust your open source dependencies? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, while working on open source, I kind of got a fir- firsthand look at how the sausage is made. And um, the thing is, like, modern applications use thousands of dependencies. Uh, I think Hello World for React is is up to, like, 1,400 dependencies now. If you run Create React App, it's... Pretty crazy, yeah. And and so you're trusting thousands of dependencies written by hundreds of maintainers, and installing even one package can lead to you know these dozens of transitive dependencies coming along for the ride. And it's just far too easy for a bad actor to infiltrate uh, what they call the software supply chain. So this sort of idea of like you know, where your where your code comes from and uh, and and wreak havoc. So um, so yeah, Socket's a platform to protect you from those types of attacks. And a lot of companies and different individuals are using it. Right Right now and and so I'm happy to jump into more about how that works. Yeah, I think we should because it's just interesting. We can always go backwards and forwards in time. You know, there's no rules. This is just a podcast. Are we specifically talking about NPM or are you using the word supply chain and, and that type of thing generically? Because maybe someday you might do it for Python two or whatever, or do you already, or what's up with that? Yeah, we want to do all the like all the languages eventually. Right now, we're one hundred percent JavaScript focused. So JavaScript is not only the biggest ecosystem, but it's also kind of the one that like we get all the problems first. Like you know, <laughs> we're, when you're the biggest, you know, all the like people. Some people think it's just something about JavaScript. Why you know why why are there always these uh, news you know news stories about attacks in in JavaScript and in NPM? Right, and I don't think it's you know, I don't think it's because JavaScript programmers are, are worse or anything like that. Some people probably would love to say that and say, oh, you know, those those JavaScript folks, they've forgotten how to program because they need to install a package uh, when they could have written a three-line function. They'll, they'll go and they'll go and install a package for it instead. I don't I don't buy that. Um, I mean, there's some element of that that's true, but... <laughs> yeah, it's because on average, isn't that true? Because I actually told somebody to use Lodash this week. <laughs> like, just use Lodash. We don't need to write that. So. Yeah, you know, it, it's part of partly true. I think so. I think it's a few things. Like one is NPM was the first package manager to really solve uh, dependency hell. So if you go to like Python or these other these older package managers and you install foo version one, and then you install another dependency later on, and that dependency wants to use foo version two. Uh, Python will just throw up its hands and say, we don't know what to do because you're, oh. you, you're trying to use Foo version one and something else in your project wants Foo version two and we cannot install both Foo version one and Foo version two. You're screwed, right? Um, whereas NPM said, wait a minute, like 
why don't we just install both of those versions and give Foo version one to anything that wants Foo version one and give Foo version two to anything that wants Foo version two. <laughs> is so, that better though? I guess it kind of, yeah, maybe it is better, but it leads to bigger packages, right? So, it, so the, the front end side of my soul says that's horrible. And the back end side says, ah, oh, who cares? You know, it's just exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it sort of makes like development easier. Like it means that when you type install, like it'll never fail. It'll just, it'll just work. Uh, and so it optimizes for like that, that development experience being really nice. Um, the downside is of course, like what you said, you'll end up with like multiple versions and it also, it, it, it creates this kind of like psychological thing where now the cost of adding a dependency is super low. Because hmm. if I, as a maintainer, know that I can just depend on this package and it's not going to cause any problems for my users, then I don't have to think twice about it. Whereas, like in Python, there, you know, if you introduce a dependency on Foo, you're thinking like ten times about it. Because if if that version is different than what another package needs, hmm. then you just caused a ton of pain for your users. So, so that's I think that's a big reason why npm ended up with this culture of just a lot of dependencies. Oh, um, I see your users, meaning not necessarily the users of your website, the users of your open source package. Exactly. Yeah. There's no cost yeah. for a maintainer of a package to add dependencies to it um, because it, you know, I mean, there, there's less cost because it, you're not going to create this dependency hell situation for the users of the, of the package. Right. Um, you know, and, and in some ways too, it's good that we don't like rewrite these, this code. Cause I mean, copying and pasting code in from stack overflow into your project just to avoid a dependency, you know, that, that, that has some some downsides too that you know people don't like to talk about. I mean, you know, uh, Leftpad is an is an example folks like to really point to and say like you know oh well, why can't people just write that? Have we forgotten how to program? Um, and that's true. That's somewhat. true. What it, all it did was put some I don't know white space or something on the side of a string. But what was the story to remind ourselves of what went wrong there? Was it was it a programmer who decided to delete that? package is that how that went down so the programmer there i think he he had a conflict with npm in some way he was upset that they took one of his package names uh, of, a, of another one of his packages and then he just mm. decided to unpublish all his code and that broke a bunch of people's builds um, and then it, it actually led directly to npm making unpublishing not possible in most circumstances oh so it's kind of had a big fallout so there are weaknesses to the supply chain, even though it's perhaps better than the whatever Python's version of. There's still, I don't know, weaknesses in the the chain, mm-hmm. as it were. Yeah, and and more than just like unpublishing packages, there's been you know you guys probably saw the news about this, but like you know back in January of this year, there was a maintainer who had a similar sort of uh, moment where he decided to go rogue and he added some pretty weird code into his packages that printed out all kinds of like weird conspiracy messages and, uh, mm. you know, um, like added infinite loops, you know, while true, that kind of thing into the code and yeah. sort of just sabotage his own code. Um, right. And, and so, you know, that, that kind of thing can happen that isn't, isn't, isn't necessarily like a security issue as much as just like a, just sort of a, you know, uh, quality issue. Like it sort of he decided to kind of ruin his own code. Uh, and then yeah. there's, there's been cases of like, you know, protest where too, you've probably seen these where, yeah. you know, someone I decided a blog to post that you had about that, that said that it was kind of a, I think it looked up maybe an IP table or something and was like, was this from Russia? Then, you mm-hmm. know, return false or something. Um, on, a, on something pretty big. And even you said styled components, which our front-end audience is probably familiar with. Didn't you say theirs was pretty benign? It just like printed something to the console or something, but ultimately still performed its function? Yeah. So there's various levels of of like badness here. So on the most benign side of things with Protestware, there's folks who are just printing out like a console log at install time to sort of express their opinions. I think that's totally fine. Um, I think... Uh, on the opposite extreme, there was someone who published code that would delete your hard drive if you were uh, appeared wow. to be coming from Russia. So they would look at your we IP address. Pause on that one for a minute. Yeah, yeah. First, explain it. But I, have, I definitely have some questions there. Yeah, I don't know. It's one thing to kind of use your platform as a maintainer to protest, uh, you know, and sort of you know use your voice to 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 support things you believe in, and then it's it's another to like sort of just kind of blindly um, you know destroy people's you know people's data and stuff. And I, I think, I personally think that one kind of crossed the line there. Um, it, it would, uh, it would look at your IP address, uh, figure out where, where it thought you were coming from. And if it thought you were Russian, it would just uh, start like iterating through all the files on your hard drive and replacing the contents with a heart emoji. So you just like wow. lose all your files. And it presumably 
did it happen to anybody? Did it happen to a lot of people? Did it, was it real? I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. so it was included in a package that had, you know, t- I think it was millions or tens of millions of downloads and it was, it was live for a few hours. So it definitely hit, hit real people. And, wow. and, um, you know, I mean, Could it happened to me and my, I, my I stock think it was, MacBook here. I think and it whatever. was in the Nux CLI. I think it got hit by it. So, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the view CLI maybe. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's always like joke, I don't know, joke comics or something. What is it? RMRF, you know, is that star or something? Like, is it as simple as that? Is that is that kind of command possible to run via an NPM script that literally just deletes your freaking hard drive? So, uh, yeah, I mean, this particular package did it in a more complicated way because it didn't want to just RMRF it. It wanted to, like, put heart emojis everywhere on your computer yeah. for, for every reason. But you you can actually just add RMRF as an install script uh, and NPM will happily run that as a, you know, as a post-install step after the package is installed. And so skipping to the end a little bit, so will Socket look for that? Do I need some, because <laughs> NPM won't, right? Apparently they don't care if RMRF <laughs> just lives in a freaking script, which is, blows my mind. I mean, that that's at the heart of the issue, right? That NPM, there's some stuff on there that's just like a CSS file or something, pretty benign, but some of it is executable code, could be a freaking binary, could be whatever, right? And it, and not only does it come down to my computer and I know that I can run it, there's also things called install scripts, right? So if in the package.json, one of the scripts in there happens to be named something like prepare or install or post install or something, just by virtue of me typing npm install, which we all do a million times a day, I mean, maybe not a day, but you know, it's the most common thing we do on npm, that code will literally execute with my administrator privileges, presumably, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that mind-blowing a little bit? Why, mm-hmm. how, it seems like this is a problem, but it's almost amazing that it hasn't been an even bigger problem. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I think in some ways it's a miracle. It's like how how most people are actually good. Like the fact that you can just take this code that Apparently you haven't even... proved it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, 99.9, it's some really high percentage of, of maintainers are, are publishing really good code that you can just blindly install and use and it like mostly just works. Um, the problem comes in when you have like, you know, a, an exception to the rule and you have like somebody abusing that trust that folks have in open source to, you know, t- t- they take over a package by by hijacking it in some way. Maybe the maintainer used a weak password. Maybe they, you know, they uh, hmm. sent a few good pull requests and then eventually got added as a co-maintainer to the project and then they go rogue at that point. There's different ways it can happen. But, um, you know, it, it is, is overall, um, you know, it is pretty rare if you think about the number of NPM installs that we're running that this happens. But when it does happen, right, it, when, it, when a really popular package does get taken over, then it can wreak havoc, right? I mean, it, 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 it's it's something that npm cares about to, to your point about npm it's something they care about fixing and they they are trying to scan for malicious packages but for whatever reason their their approach currently it it's a very reactive thing where they'll 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 let a package get uploaded and then after it's live they'll they have some kind of step that comes in and tries to see if it's malware and then we'll take it down but during the time that it's live it could have affected people um and I see. And so, and and then and then and then whatever they're they're using is just not that sophisticated yet because it it's sort of stuff gets by all the time, right? Just based on the news headlines that you see. So I you know it's not I would say that I would say that they they care, but it's just that it's not it's just not working very well right now. Sure, they might have to buy you or something, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. This episode of Shop Talk Show was brought to you in part by Reflect. That's reflect.run slash shop talk. Follow the link in the show notes. Reflect is an automated no-code testing tool that shaves countless hours off your end-to-end testing time from writing and maintaining tests to root causing to debugging errors. Creating tests is as simple as using your web app. So visit your site within Reflect's simulated browser and perform the actions you want to test. Then Reflect auto-generates the selectors and does all the painstaking work of test creation 
creation and maintenance for you to do in minutes. So the features include like visual validation, cross-browser testing, Safari, Chrome, Firefox, Edge, and email and SMS validation. Sign up through the referral link here and you get a two-week trial and you get to claim a free t-shirt. Hey, why not? Reflect.run slash shop talk. Really an amazing tool, really. You all know about end-to-end tests, right? Like you go to your website. Let's say it's a Trello-like website. Like that's kind of the, the demo they have on their homepage. And you're, you need to test this app. It's your job to make sure that you don't break this app, which is the point of test. You, let's say you write a test that's like, okay, go to this URL, click the new card button, enter this text, maybe it has HTML in it or something, and then click add card. And then the test can be like, was the card created? Does it have the right text in it? Did it go in the right place? That's an end-to-end test. It's testing up that your app works, essentially across a whole kind of mini workflow. Really useful stuff. And then that test runs every time there's like a PR and makes sure your app works forever, which is just worth its weight in gold. So thanks so much for the support. Reflect. Uh, all right. So, so so I think I saw uh, maybe it was part of the marketing for Zagat dev or something that was like, okay, there's been a new release of a package and there's some kind of warning that comes up. I don't know where you see it exactly. I'm sure you can explain, but it was like this dependency that you have all of a sudden it didn't have a install script before, but now it does. And that should be like a moment as like a maintainer where you're like, whoa, I better look at that before I allow that into my code base. Do I have that right? Because that would be something that would be a a concern, right? Perhaps it's some of this protest where. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's what we realized when, when, so I was, you know, when I was looking at all the, all the attacks that have been happening, I kind of dug into the code and said, okay, what are the things that, that people do when they take over a package? What do the bad guys do? And it was always, it was always like, you know, it usually involves somehow stealing data, sending it to the network right? So reading environment variables, reading files, uh, sending it to the network or running shell commands. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and so we, we looked at just sort of like, what are the signals here that we should be looking at that could be the, you know, that could indicate that a package has, um, been taken over or has significantly changed its behavior in a way that is worrying. Right. Mm-hmm. And anytime a package that you're using does one of those things, that's actually a, a really good sign that you should take a second look and and really dig in and, and be able to answer like you know answer the question like why does this package suddenly need to be able to to do an install script or to run a shell oh, command so you know if it ran a bash a shell script if it if a package didn't run a shell script and now it does run a shell script that's a Anything that Socket can detect? Maybe I should, instead of just asking you really specific questions, what does Socket do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. What would so, you say you do here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I take the packages from here. From the and the developers I, and give it to yeah, the customers. I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I deal with the goddamn packages. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, that's a great movie. No, so so what we do is um, we have a few things. So the first, probably the easiest way to get started with Socket is you can just go to socket.dev and you can type in a package that you're curious about and then look at what Socket has found in that package. So we give you a couple things. We'll give you like scores for the package. So how, what's the quality of it? What's the security status of it? What's the maintenance? Does it have uh, a, a license you can use? So just sort of High-level scores. It kind of looks like Lighthouse, to be honest. If you look at it, it kind of looks like sort of zero to one hundred Lighthouse-style scores for each package. And then um, it also gives you uh, any alerts or any kind of like high, like sort of high importance uh, issues that we found in the package. So that'll be stuff like you know, hey, this package uh, contains a giant obfuscated blob of code in it. Click here to see what it is, right? Or hey, this package has had a new maintainer added recently. Um, or hey, this package. We'll send your data the, to the network. Click here to see the line of code where it's going to send the fetch request and, and talk to the network, right? So you can get it a, a, a kind of a quick glance. You can get a sense for like, what does this package do? So if it's something, you know, like, hey, say you're installing Express and Express, you know, talks to the network. Well, that's not surprising. It's a web server. Like, obviously, Express is going to need to talk to the network, right? But if you're installing like a component and it's a drop down, you know, a little drop-down input component or something, and you see that that is reading your environment variables and sending them to the network, and it has an install script, you're going to say, like, what is going on here? Like, this makes no sense, right? So 
it gives you a sense of like, it's almost like, like when you install an app on your phone and it wants to like access your contacts or look at your photos, Yeah, the app has to ask you first, right? It has to disclose. It can't just do it, right? And that's kind of what we're trying to bring to NPM packages so you can see at a glance, like this is what it's going to do. Almost like a, like a nutrition facts label where we, we, we sort of, like you have on food, it'll tell you this is this many calories, does this much sugar. And it's up to you to decide is 300 calories good or bad? I mean, it depends on what your goals are. Like it may be, maybe accessing yeah. the network is okay, but maybe it's not, you know? And so we want to just tell you sort of what it's doing without you needing to jump into the code and really like evaluate every line of code. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So you can see this lighthouse type score pretty useful. So that's, yeah, I mean, that's evaluating it at, at some particular stage of me caring. Maybe I'm adding a new package. So mm-hmm. I would look at these nutrition facts to see if it's kind of worthy of doing that or what I should be worried about. But probably more on a day-to-day level, I'm worried about the like crap happening to my project. Just what happened one day? Ah, mm-hmm. What's that like? Yeah, so for that, we have a GitHub app that you can install. So if you if you go ahead and uh, add our GitHub app, the Socket GitHub app, to your repo, uh, then uh, we will automatically watch uh, for new pull requests coming through. Uh, so anytime a new PR like lands in the, you know, or a new PR is sent, uh, Socket will look at what dependencies have been added in that pull request and what dependencies have been updated. Uh, in that pull request. And then when we see that there's a difference in the behavior, we'll leave a comment on that PR uh, as well as um, we have a check. So we can, you know, put a red X on that PR and say, you know, that, uh, you know, someone should take a closer look at this. You could, if you wanted to make it unmergeable. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you can, you can, um, you can use that to sort of like, I think of it as like, I don't, I don't think in general that we want to, our philosophy isn't to be an annoying security tool that like blocks developers from getting their job done. Although you can definitely configure it to, to be that way if you want. But I'm much more of the opinion that like developers actually care. They, they care about this stuff. They want to do the right thing. But right now it's just way too hard. Like it's too much work to to read all the lines of code of, of your dependencies. So no one is doing it. But I think if, if people have a comment coming in and just giving them a little bit of extra information that um, that de- developers will actually do the right thing there. So if I see that an alert is is coming through and it, it uh, tells me that, you know, this package is doing something absolutely ridiculous, uh, you know, I'm not going to want to merge that. I'm not going to ignore that. Right. Mm, if it, you know, right. It's not it's not something that that that. Uh, you necessarily need to block on is kind of is kind of my philosophy. What like uh, does socket or maybe you've put some thought into this just like one issue I have is like I'll npm and you know install and it's like you have mm-hmm. seventy two thousand vulnerabilities mm-hmm. audit fix you know and it's like audit fix obviously breaks everything um and, and then I like look into some of them and a lot of it's like oh jest has a regex that's weird or something just never makes it to production. Like, like, is this something you consider? Like, is there, you know, does NPM kind of need to evolve? Like in, in terms of like just dependencies and dev dependencies or, or how, what, what's your thoughts on like those kind of issues and how you should think about them? Cause I think Dan Abramov famously was like, don't care. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, so part of, that's totally valid. And I think like part of the pro- part of the reason why developers get so much fatigue around security is because of those types of alerts where you, you know, I mean, I look, I care a lot about security. I teach a web security class at Stanford. I literally have like working on this security company and I basically ignore the the NPM audit results. <laughs> like, so what does yeah. that tell you? Right. I mean, it, it, it it's super it's, valuable. I should <laughs> <laughs> always say yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think, I think we need to like be careful when we're building security tools to, to really care a lot about the signal to noise ratio. And I think NPM audit, you know, while it was a good attempt, it's just sort of too noisy in its current form. And, and it's to the point where, you know, everybody is pretty much just shipping code to production that has, dozens or hundreds of, of vulnerabilities. And they're just, they don't know whether that's a big deal or not. They really just don't know what to do about it. And so it just ends up being ignored. And, and, uh, part of the problem here is that like, there's a lot of companies, there's a lot of like vendor, like sort of 
big companies in the space uh, that try to basically find as many of these vulnerabilities as possible. There's all these incentives. The security researchers, they want to be able to claim that they found something. So, And they also have an incentive to inflate the significance of it and say it's critical or it's high when it's maybe yeah, they low. Sure do. <laughs> yeah. There's also like the companies wanting to say that they have a database of, you know, the most vulnerabilities possible so they can sell that to people. So that's all contributing to this like inflation of these where these like not important things that have to do with like regex is being slow or whatever in a dev tool get like inflated as a critical issue or whatever. So socket is trying to not have that problem because it's probably worth taking a second here just to distinguish because there's, there's known vulnerabilities, which are like CVEs or whatever. Yeah. CVEs, uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, those are, those are usually accidents that? that are, I mean, I figure I'm a podcast host and I don't know. So maybe somebody in the audience does it though too. <laughs> a common, it stands for common vulnerabilities and exposures. And it's a list of, of computer security, you know, bugs, basically. It's, uh, it's run by, it's this database mm. that's run by the government, by the U.S. government. Uh, uh, and um, they, they basically, it's like a kind of a central place to submit all the known security flaws in all software. So like desktop apps, open source wow. libraries, everything. It all just goes into this big database. Okay. It's run by the government. And uh, when, you, when you're a security researcher and you find a bug, your goal is to get a CVE issued uh, for it and to sort of write, 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 write up a report. And then you can say, oh, I have, you know, I found this many CVEs this year. And so, and, and it's, it's, oh. it's a useful database because then tools can download it. And, and that's basically what NPM Audit does is it just, downloads this, you know, database and tells you when you have a package that's in that list, basically, right? Oh, wow. How did I not know that? That's, it seems like a big deal. Okay. Whoops. Well, <laughs> but it's sort of like, too, it's like if you're reporting a vulnerability, you like do it the official way. It gets like logged as a thing. Like, um, I think there's, there's sort of like, yeah, it, it's, I don't know. It's just interesting. Like, it's sort of like a, we have, reported this bug in a fish in an official capacity it's not just like some guy thought this was bad you know so exactly yeah so so i mean that's that's all good like people should be like scanning for cves in this in this way to some extent i mean there are sometimes really bad ones right so i think the tooling could be better at, at like highlighting when ones are truly truly critical right uh versus just not a big deal because it's in a dev tool or something like that but um Socket is more interested and more focused on supply chain attacks because right now there's really no, nothing out there that does a good job with catching those. Because if you're relying on this database of of like known issues that folks have submitted, you know, security researchers have submitted reports to, that's not going to help catch when a package is is hijacked and is is you know it contains malware and no one has found it yet. Right, you're gonna just you're gonna run npm install and your computer's gonna get owned. And then tomorrow in the news, when they, when someone catches it finally and there's a report written about it, you're gonna be like, oh crap, did I install that? And then you're gonna you're gonna you know, it, right? You know, it, it'll be it'll be too late at that point, basically. So the the point of socket is, you know, if you are building a security critical app, right? If you're building anything that's in production and you you have user data, right? Or you have you have uh, or even on your own computer that you're worried about infecting, right? You don't want to just be blindly NPM installing code without having even read it. And so you want to, you want to have some, some check, some basic, um, you know, evaluation that'll tell you if this is a likely supply chain attack. And that's what Socket's trying to do. So we can catch those, 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 packages that you don't even want to, because here's the thing, like known vulnerabilities, you can run those, you can install that on your computer today. No, nothing's going to happen. It just means that if, if a bad guy sends the right HTTP request, maybe that library will, will be vulnerable in some way. But with a supply chain attack, it's literally malware. Like you don't want to even run that once. You don't want to NPM install that even one time. There's, there's nothing, there's no way you can say, oh, we'll get to, we'll, we'll fix that next month or whatever. Like, no, you, you are going to have problems today if you install that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So like breaking it into two levels of severity, it's like the oops, <laughs> that's vulnerable code. And then there's like, ooh, uh-oh, red sirens blaring. Siren. Yeah. Somebody mm -hmm. is trying to attack me from my node modules. So. And interestingly, those bigger problems have less tooling to help you. There's some irony there or something. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So that's what we're trying to address. Like we think that if you if you look for this stuff, like, you know, uh, network access and shell shell usage and uh, the presence of 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 like weird big blobs of code and this kind of thing, then um, that'll actually catch supply chain attacks and um, 
and also just help people pick better packages because you know, there's just a lot of weirdness going on in NPM. If you really poke around, <laughs> it's, it even goes beyond the security point of, you know, angle as well. It's, it's, it's kind of wild what uh, you'll find if you, if you click around socket for a little bit. Um, so yeah, there's, there's even, there's even telemetry. Have you guys heard about this? Like packages gathering telemetry and sending it, sending it to the maintainers. Is telemetry, just like usage data essentially, or. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, um, some packages that will, that will like, um, you can add to your package if you're a maintainer and then it'll it'll um send your ip address and the the name of your project and uh stuff like that to the maintainer to kind of figure out like which companies are you, they want to figure out which companies are installing their code actually like literally so i there was a cve like a dependabot alert but you know for this parse url which I looked, I was like, where and who's using parse URL in my app? You know, well, it's Nuxt, Nuxt telemetry, and then like get URL parse. And I was like, why does Nuxt need to know my get URL? But I guess they do, or they're trying. So, wow, weird. So for that one, Socket will, 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 will catch that and tell you how to disable the telemetry. So it'll, it'll in the GitHub comment hmm. when you add Nuxt. For the first time, uh, it'll yeah. or or when you do a scan, kind of a, to, to get the current sort of state of your repo, we'll tell you uh, you have telemetry in one dependency, and here is the environment variable you should set or the option you should pass when you initialize it to turn that oh, off. Oh well, that's cool. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So good software like has a pretty strong opinion about what it does and what it doesn't do, and what yours doesn't do is little, you know, like oh. Whatever, some React plugin has a little XSS thing or something. You like just don't. You're not not Socket's job. We're in the the bigger. Mm-hmm. Or do you do you do, do report on all that little crap too? You just don't surface it as strongly. Yeah, we we do have we do have that data, and it does feed into like the scores. So we have a vulnerability mm-hmm. score, but um, it's not what makes Socket different or unique. And we don't currently like we're not planning to go and just start spamming people with that information because. We want the we want the signal to be really really high. So the stuff that we will leave a comment on on your pull requests is all very like high signal stuff that you're going to be really glad that you got notified about. Good, that sounds good. I think you know Dave mentioned Dependabot, so that's a thing that is it's I don't know it's related I guess because it's like oh shoot there's some update and the reason that the package was updated is because it fixes some problem that's pretty useful of github to have done but is in that what is it c r v c v is that based on that data probably yeah yeah okay and then there's like not to make you forced to talk about potential competitors or anything but it's only because i don't understand this all the way there's a there's a thing called sync.io that claims to help with vulnerability stuff too that i don't fully understand despite having friends who have worked there in the past are you like a direct competitor of that or do they also are they also just different somehow so they're they're basically a competitor to dependabot and um they they just do the cves so the known vulnerabilities so there's pretty much here's the thing the security industry they're really obsessed with known vulnerabilities because it's easy because all the data is there. It's public in a big database and it's not that hard to like write a tool that looks at your package JSON and tells you, Hey, you have this version that is in a list. So you should not use that anymore. You should update. That's like what pretty much all this tooling does. And, you know, they've done other things. They've made it like, uh, you know, they have like different integrations with different tools and all this kind of stuff that people are paying, you know, that's why people are paying for it. But at the end of the day, it's pretty similar to Dependabot and it just, it'll send you a pull request when you have a, a known vulnerability. And yeah, that, that's pretty much what it does. Not, not, it does not do the the stuff that Socket does where we actually analyze the code. Like we have to, we, what we do, we have to download every NPM package and we have to run an analysis on it. And we have to figure out what it's doing. Um, none of these other tools do that. They just they just tell you whether it has any issues in this database. That's so cool. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Notion. Learn more and get started for free at Notion.com 
slash CodePen. That's Notion.com slash CodePen to help you take the first step towards an organized, happier team today. That again is Notion.com slash CodePen. I know this is Shop Talk Show and not CodePen Radio, but that's the URL we got just to keep all them clicks all consolidated for this overall sponsorship. Notion is the best. As you know, I've done videos about how we use Notion. We've talked about Notion a ton on CodePen Radio and Shop Talk Show. It's a phenomenal software product. In my opinion, really changed the game for or in kind of like invented a new category of knowledge management app, which is kind of how I think of it. But it's it's an app that's really at the core of running any kind of business, but probably mostly you know, software technology businesses, because that's where my brain is at. It helps you plan projects and have shared calendars and have shared meeting notes. And, you know, it, it, what you can do with it is really open-ended in the best possible way. Everything you make is like a database or documents, and it's all nested and has good permissions levels and stuff. I know I'm speaking very abstractly here, but once you get into using it, you're going to find it very natural and comfortable to use, especially in a team setting. And it just really brings people together. And I have no doubt that it's made us a better place to work at the places that uh, uh, the businesses I've incorporated Notion into there. It's like Notion is where the work happens a lot of times, and I really love that. I also want to say one thing about how I appreciate how they get the details right at Notion as a company. For example, for a long time, anybody says, where's the API? Where's the API? For years and years and years. Finally, they're like, here's the API. And it's super well done, and it's well documented. It has good default integrations. It's just a super well done API. To the point where people were just like, um, thanks. <laughs> That's perfect, actually. Great. <laughs> you know? And then they took a bunch of time to get even a little detail about how text is selected across blocks in the document editor. Went Just underwent this great improvement of how you can select text across them. And it feels just like you're selecting text in a natural way that you'd expect in any text editor, which was different before because of the block nature of editing. A little hard to describe, but if you don't notice it, well... That's what they wanted. They didn't want you to be like, oh, why is text selection weird in here? Which it kind of used to be a little bit. Uh, and now it's just better. And I appreciate that. Like, we're going to spend time on that detail. Not on some necessarily some big flashy thing, but just on getting the experience of using the app good. Thanks for the support, Notion. So then socket when when how does it where does it sit in my workflow it, it's on npm install or is it on like is it i know there's like a github integration so is it on is it just living in github or where does it fit into my workflow so right now it's just on github so it will watch your prs um we're we're also working on because you know you're, you're making a good point here which is or I, I guess i think you're making this point <laughs> which is like when you run npm install like that's also like you want to protect your own computer too. You don't want to wait until it gets gets onto GitHub for us to tell you that hey, this this dependency is actually doing something sketchy. Um, so we want to protect your local like your when you run npm install as well. So we're 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 this this month and next month we're we're working on um, this new thing um, that we're calling right now, kind of calling safe npm, which is going to be. Uh, a, a thing you can use to intercept your npm installs. So when you run npm Ooh. install, we can actually sort of um, give you a like a kind of a report card almost of like here's what this package is going to do. Do you want to proceed? You know, yes, no. And so it's just one extra little step in your npm install workflow, and um, it'll it'll help to catch stuff before it even affects your own computer. So you don't have to wait until the GitHub um, pull request is sent to catch that. Nice. So interesting. It made me think of like, why is it that we execute all this stuff kind of at this kind of this root root terminal level at all? Like, is that dumb? Is there a, is there a world in which we all containerize everything we do on npm? I I don't know why Docker hasn't taken off more. Maybe it's just too annoying to use or something. But like, yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy that we. You want to you want to build a website, so you have to run npm install, and then that package that you haven't read the code for is going to get the ability to read and write your entire hard drive. Like it can literally <laughs> delete like your whole photo library, for example, if it wanted to. Love it. Love is trust. You you have. 
if you love something, you give it access to your full hard drive. I, I think that's that's just basic science. <laughs> well, I guess it works in your favor temporarily that this is risky business. So uh use socket no i mean i i, I want to solve the problem i'm not just trying to sell socket here like yeah, I, think I, know, I know no no well it just it's interesting too like like just the different places where you want audit like you want kind of like when i'm npm installing i kind of want to like make sure i didn't do a bad and then when i pr i want to make sure i didn't do a bad and then maybe even like in deploy or something like what gets installed there isn't bad either um but I'm, I'm just thinking about like all the things we want to do there. Like, you know, it's like, I want to lint my code, you know, locally or, or, and then I want to lint it on PR and then I want to, you know, lint it on build or, or run my tests or check accessibility or check performance. Like do all these, you want all these checkpoints to happen all the time. Uh, it's, it's just, it's an interesting world. I guess we live in from, from development standpoint. It's like, you always want to be, checking always everywhere at every single <laughs> at every single keystroke you want to check so mm -hmm. yeah it also makes me think like i don't know could can i run a version of npm that doesn't allow anybody to have any scripts that they that auto run yeah 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 you can well you can pass the flag when you run npm install it's um, i think it's dash dash ignore lifecycle uh, or something like that. Let me see here. Nice. I, I should look at but, that. That just what that one in particular bugs me. <laughs> yeah, you can even make it the default. I think you can um, you can put it in your in your configuration for npm, and then it'll never run install scripts. Yeah, I wonder what that breaks. But, but it, it, it does well, break like, stuff. I, I like using them personally. We have one in our repo that's like, you know, because the, the the vibe of Git is that you generally you don't commit your build artifacts, right? So we have like a repo of like icons and the, these SVG icons because our React project like grabs an SVG icon and it turns it into a little JSX component thing. And But we don't commit those because those are just built things. The SVG is the more like authored code in a way. So the everybody has this I don't know, post install script or whatever that when you pull the repo, it like if there's any new SVGs, it builds them. Pretty useful, but that's our own code. You know, like you don't get to do that. Yeah. No, I, I think there's there's um there's a library uh that um I'm forgetting the name of now, but there's a way to basically have an allow list of packages that you want to give the permission to run install scripts to, but then by default it doesn't run them. Um you can use that to kind of jerry-rig like a, um, you know, you can make it so that, yeah, it, you control what actually gets to run an install script. That's cool. It's just to, I don't know, extend things a little bit. You mentioned that you teach web security at Stanford. So you have a, some cl class of of kids. Is that where you went, by the way? Are you a, are you an alum that's now teaching the same program that yeah. you went through? Yeah, so I did undergrad there, and then I went I, after after working on open source uh, pretty much like full time since graduating. Um, I wanted to go back to get my master's, and so I went back in 2018, and um, I got I, I kind of I, I was really interested in like security, so I, I I took all these like cryptography classes and like networking classes and just. Um, got really interested in just going deep on security and, 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 um, and then when I was there, uh, I, I asked that one of the professors who taught web security, uh, like, why don't you guys teach this anymore? That was my favorite class in undergrad. Um, and they said that they're, they're teaching cryptocurrency instead now, <laughs> instead of web security. Uh, and so, uh, I was like, Oh, well that seems, I mean, I, okay, I guess that's, that's cool. But can we also have a web security class? Cause that seems pretty important to me. And, uh, they said, well, if you teach it, then we can add it back. And, uh, I said, okay, that sounds pretty fun. Uh, and so I, I went and updated the course, which hadn't been taught since, since 2011 and updated it for, you know, the modern web. Cause a lot has changed since 2011. And then, you know, um, that was uh, that was pretty fun, and I put all the videos online so people can can look at them now and and uh, watch them. And I think a ton of people have watched them on YouTube. There's like if you search web if you search Stanford Web Security or CS two fifty three, it has 
Yeah, tens of thousands. It always blows my mind that colleges do that. It's like it seems like your most valuable thing, the most valuable thing of college is the courses itself. And so many colleges are just like, ah, whatever, just put it on YouTube. Apparently it doesn't maybe it maybe it helps, you know, get get students through the door. I don't know. I I love it. I don't know. I mean, like let's democratize the information as much as possible like oh, we yeah, really I love need it to. Too. But like I just yeah, it is wild. Like a university who like pays you to like make this is also just like sure, but up on YouTube. Uh, yeah. Web security as a big topic. Like, what's the first thing do you think people need to know? I, I think yeah, exactly. What are you teaching these kids? <laughs> even myself, it's like I learned this stuff way late, and I I have nonce because that's what it, I was told to do. You know, <laughs> so yeah. Like, what what do people need to kind of know to get started? So I think the most important thing is is not like any specific piece of knowledge, but more about like the mindset that you need to bring to your your programming. Thinking like an attacker is the most important thing. So like when you're writing code, you need to have in your mind um, this this like adversary who's going to try to break your code. So 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 as you're writing like if you're writing a function, you have to imagine like what would happen if someone passed in an argument of a different type or an argument that was longer than you expected or something that was completely random text instead of like the format you were looking for. And you just have to like these kinds of things you have to be thinking about as you're writing the code because um, really at, at every stage of the process, like you need to think about security kind of throughout the process. So it, when you've done it long enough, it becomes a background process that just runs in your mind, which is like, okay, how could someone break this? Okay, how could someone how could someone trick me here? How could someone make this function crash? How could someone cause us to throw an exception? And the cool thing about that that mindset is it's it's actually it helps you more than just in writing secure code. It also helps you write like better code because if you're thinking about how this could crash or what what could be a condition an error condition here that I didn't expect, you're going to end up writing better code because you're going to catch that exception. You're going to handle that case. You're going to it's not going to just throw a random exception in the middle of the function because something happened that you didn't expect. You're going to end up being a little bit more defensive in how you write things. And so I think that that's something that um, that's like kind of, if you have that mindset, you'll end up, you'll end up asking the right questions and digging into the, into the, into the right things and learning, learning what you need to learn um, to make your code really good. Um, You don't need to know some, some specific like list of things as much as just that's interesting. It's like a philosophy more mm-hmm. so than like, okay, kids, this is like what an SQL injection attack looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that, because that's you, too specific. Yeah. If you think about the SQL injection example you just gave, right? Like, what is going on there, right? It's it's that like you wrote this code and you didn't think that that input could be different than what you thought it should be, right? And like, so it comes, it all comes back to the same thing where like the attacker surprised you in some way, right? And so it's it's about like. And if you think about it from the other, like think about it from the other perspective, like if you're an attacker, like and you're trying to break something, right? Which is kind of fun to do, by the way. I recommend breaking things is fun. Um, like, what are you trying to do, right? You're trying to find a difference between the the written rules of the system and the actual rules of the system. So the written rules are, you know, okay, you have a login form. You're supposed to be able to type in a username and a password and log in, right? The actual rules of the system might be that you can put some SQL into the username field and that'll actually get added to the SQL query and it'll do a SQL injection, right? So you're trying to find this gap between like what, you know, they were trying to do and what they, you know, what you can actually do. And, and so, so it, it like, that's the thing you have to constantly be asking yourself when you're coding is like, well, what could someone do if they were really evil here? Right. So it's totally a mindset thing. Do, do you like tools? Like, I don't know. I I'm just saying stuff. But like meta exploit and all these kind of like there's tools you can do to like automate a, an attacker on your site, right? Is that something we should like all know how to use or just like how we all know how to use a screen reader, right? But like, is that something we should like know how to use or be familiar with? Or is that just overkill? Uh, I personally think that's overkill. Um, I think being familiar with like what the features of your frame of your web framework that you're using are like, and whether it covers a bunch of the common security things out of the box, like knowing that kind of stuff is more important. And fortunately, a lot of stuff today does the right thing for you by default. 
So you have to really go out of your way to do something wrong these days. Like, like in React, for example, you know, you, you can't do an XSS on yourself unless you go out of your way to, 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 to use dangerously set inner HTML, right? So it has dangerously right there in the name. So you got, you, <laughs> you know, you got to know when you're doing that, that you're... My favorite part of that API is not only that, but you have to pass it this awkward object with like double underscore HTML in it. And even when I think about it, and then I remember I have to like craft an object just so to, I'm like, ah, you're right. I'll do it the right way. God damn it. <laughs> really forces you to, to not yeah. use it. Yeah. No, making hard things or dangerous things like a little bit harder to do and making making you think twice is actually a really important part of good API design. Uh, in other in other templating languages that I've used, they'll do things like you know, um, I think like two you know two two uh, curly braces uh, substitutes in something safely, but then like three curly braces substitutes it in unsafely, and so unsafely, yeah, yeah. And you're, you're like you look you're looking at the if you're looking at like a like a pull request that someone on your team sent. Are you going to really notice the difference between two and three? No, like unless you're really no. looking carefully. Yeah. No. I submitted a, a a PR with that exact change just just recently, and it was to make it less secure. Ironically, because I wanted uh, I wanted like anchor links in like a paragraph in an email, and the I was using Postmark, which is like an email sending mm-hmm. service, and their little Postmark language for templating emails. That's exactly the syntax they use and without the triple brackets you know it was but but you know who knows what i was introducing mm-hmm. probably some horrible exploit but fortunately hopefully only we hit those endpoints you know uh, yeah, i don't know like i've maybe self-owned us a little bit i'm curious what you think about just you know i know we're, we're kind of buttoned up against the end but of of typed languages does it you know or like things like that that are like if i do this it, i don't know it makes it less hard to write bad or broken exploitable code because the language itself is forcing me to do the right stuff. Yeah, I mean, I avoided TypeScript for years because I I didn't I didn't want to introduce a build step in I don't know. I I guess I just have this hope that like one day we'll be able to get rid of build steps entirely and just like write you know, code to the web platform. Zero dependencies. I just mean like, you know, when you when you said TypeScript has had like 1,500 dependencies or what, or not TypeScript, uh, Create React app or, or whatever it was. And I immediately thought of like, well, yeah, but you, you know what, how many dependencies writing HTML, CSS, and JavaScript have just raw as individual files? They have none, right? And it's like mm-hmm. a very distant path between those two things weirdly Mm -hmm. and the further we can pull it back one way maybe that's good that's how i feel yeah i I would love us to get to a world where we can get rid of these build steps and this complexity as much as possible and just put more of this stuff into the web platform and so we can have like lighter lighter weight dependencies but um no i mean so so that's that's why i i been avoiding uh was avoiding typescript for a long long time in my in my career but I do think it really helps on a team when you're working on a team with other people it, that the types actually do catch quite a few bugs um, and they catch it at, at like compile time instead of at runtime. And so it's, it's actually been quite useful. We've, we're using it at socket now and I do think it can help. The only kind of downside is it it's, it's a build step. It's, it's kind of slow. And, and it also, um, it, it has a little bit of like cruft around getting everything set up correctly. Like you have to have configurations and stuff. So I haven't been really using it in like my open source projects because I don't really want to do all that ceremony um, yeah. in every, in yeah, every separate enough. package. But I do think it can really help. Um, I also think if you, if you don't want to use TypeScript, you should use a linter at the very least. Yes. Lint is great. And it, it actually catches more than, you know, it's for more than just style. It actually catches bugs. You know, it actually catches like, Hey, you're using a variable that you didn't declare um, you know, you should probably declare your variables before you try to use them, like that kind of stuff that you want to catch that as early as possible and not at runtime. So, you know, and that's pretty lightweight. That doesn't add anything to your website. It doesn't go into your bundle. It's just, right, you know, it's just, right. so, so everyone should be well, using What I'm curious linter. about is the connection between the, that mindset you're talking about. I'm a bad guy and I'm going to call this function, for example, with, with horrible parameters, mm-hmm. extra parameters or weird strings or whatever. TypeScript is like for you, but it's not real, right? It gets, it eventually turns into JavaScript. So if that function is public in any way, like you can't call your own function in TypeScript with totally wrong parameters because TypeScript will be like, man, no. 
But eventually that turns into JavaScript in which that protection no longer exists, right? So it might lure you into this sense that that uh, uh, you, you can't pass this function attacker-like stuff. It doesn't work. But you're like, yeah, but it does work once it's public, you know? Yeah, you're totally right. You're totally right, yeah. <laughs> That's, that might lure a lot of people into a false sense of security. Well, I'm not sure. I just had that thought. Whereas um, a typed language that's actually typed, you can't, right? Because the, the language itself is, will be mad at you and not accept that stuff. I'm curious, so one more thing about you, you have to do this analysis. So feel free to stop short of giving away your amazing trade secrets or whatever. But you have to, you said you have to download all of NPM to decide what's, what's happening, essentially, right? And, and every update, too, which is, I'm sure, not a trivial uh, a task to get done, some kind of fancy watcher code and who knows, cron jobs out the wazoo. But then you get this thing. Is you, are you like, what, for example, are you doing? Do you like run a diff to see how much has changed? Do you analyze it completely fresh each time? Is there, like, are you turning stuff into ASTs and rooting through the ASTs to find gnarly stuff? Or is it just string analysis? So I'm just curious, like, what, what kind of stuff you're doing to get this cool data? Yeah, so it's all um, AST based for the most part. Um, so we, we analyze um, the, the source code through, you know, analyzing the AST and look for the specific things that are bad uh, or that we want to raise issues on. And we we try to figure out the source of each of the issues so that when a new version comes out, if that issue is still present, um, but it's the same instance of it, that we can, you know, not warn you again about it because it's not an it's not being newly introduced in that version. It's actually just the same thing that was there before. So we actually need to kind of track. It's almost like get get diff where git tries to or you know when you when you when you move something around within a file it, it it's sometimes it can tell that it's the same block of code it just moved instead of rather that it's been deleted and oh, written out clever. again. clever. Right. Yeah, yeah. cuz your goal is noise reduction, which is like a pretty excellent product choice i think right is it the minute you start being obnoxious is the minute people start <laughs> uninstalling your thing the bigger question though is did you write it in zig you know it seems like all the all the hot stuff is zig based zig is zig is uh <laughs> is it's the new based rust. on pig and it's fast i guess so <laughs> No, but you do have to make you do. I, I I'm maybe curious what you actually wrote it in because uh, speed you'd think would be of the essence on analyzing all of npm every day or whatever you do, or is it just JavaScript? It's just JavaScript. Um, we we kind of made our own kind of analysis pipeline thing. So it um, what it can do is uh, it can avoid duplicating work. Um, so we have like this thing where um, when we, once we've analyzed the package. Um, we can certain parts of that analysis never need to happen again if the code hasn't changed or our analysis hasn't you know our code for anal analyzing it hasn't changed and so that stuff can get cached forever um, and then other stuff uh, that involves like the data coming from the GitHub API you know like around who the maintainers are or how many stars this thing has or how many downloads this thing has that kind of stuff we um, we want to refresh that regularly. So certain, certain analyses actually have like a, like a TTL, like a time to live so that that stuff actually does periodically get reevaluated. Mm. But some of the most heavy stuff is actually cached forever because the code, the, the code doesn't change. We don't need to do that, that analysis again. I suppose. Yeah. Cause what, what, what's like a crazy package, like something like what, the headless chromium or whatever, right? It's a billion files. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably, do you have to have a blacklist for stuff like that? I'm like that. We're going to check all the packages except that one. <laughs> no, we do. We, we analyze all of them, including, including that. Yeah. We just, we're just throwing a lot of server servers at it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Any final thoughts, Dave? No, this has been cool to think about. Just, uh, just, yeah. I mean, I think the more and more too, I think Chris and I both are, are doing a bit more like nodey work. Right. And so the more you start doing that, the more it's like you get more errors and stuff and, and you're, it's like you said, there's this big signal noise. So it's hard to figure out the like 
what I need to pay attention to. So it sounds like you're working on that problem and that's awesome. So mm-hmm. uh, thank you for coming on the show today for people who aren't following you and giving you money. How can they do that? <laughs> so the, the URL for socket is socket.dev and uh, it's free to, to use the website to look up packages and it's also free to install the GitHub app and get your repos protected. Um, and at some point, we will charge for private repos u- using it. But right now, it's free while we're while we're in beta. And um, yeah, if people want to email me or, or or reach out to me, my URL is frost.org, and I'm also frost on Twitter, uh, F E R O S S. All right. Well, thank you, Frost. And thank you, dear listener, for downloading this in your podcast your choice. Be sure to start hard favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for, man, it's probably not 16 anymore. It's probably down to eight tweets a month. And then, um, <laughs> and then we have YouTube's. So I think we're going to kick that back up again. So YouTube.com slash Shop Talk Show. And then, uh, head over to, uh, what's the, uh, what's the, Patreon.com slash Shop Talk Show. Having fun in there. So, Chris, you got anything else you'd like to say 